what's for comfort, and you can't get ice cream cones. Taint no sin to take off your skin and dance around in your bones. When the lazy syncopation of the music softly moans, taint no sin to take off your skin and dance around in your bones. The polar bear on green up in Greenland, they've got the right idea. They think it's great to refrigerate while we all cremate down here. Just be like those bamboo babies in the South Sea tropic zones. Taint no sin, take off your skin and dance around in your bones. listening to Ink Studs, and my guest this week is Eddie Campbell. Uh, Eddie's been on a number of times. Before we started, we were just talking about the last time that I spoke with Eddie, and I think it was 2012, uh, nearly six years ago, um, and I was speaking him a couple of years ago about catching up again, because uh, he had more releases coming out, the re-releases of uh, the two Bacchus giant collections, as well as the From Hell Companion, and uh, he said he had new stuff coming out soon. And I said, all right. And here we are. There is new stuff. His latest releases are a collaboration with his wife, uh, Audrey Niffenegger, uh, called Bizarre Romance, um, a collection of, I think, is it 12 short stories? 13. 13. It's like, um, it's like an album it used to have 13 songs. I, they had 12 songs at one time, and then they'd throw an extra one in. Back when it was an LP, back in the 60s. So you'll find that Sgt. Pepper has got 13 tracks. And many other famous albums of the time have 13 tracks. Oh. When they were still doing them three minutes long. Yeah. So uh, so I, we think of it we think of it as like an album. You know? It kind of has a crescendo to it? No, no, it's just it's a collection of songs. It's not, you know. They don't, they're not all about romance. Or the no, you know, that's. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the other book, um, 
which has been a long time coming is the Goat Getters. Um, I guess it's your first real big uh, work of kind of academic and historical. Uh, oh, don't things. say academic! Oh, don't say academic! Don't say academic! It's it's history. <laughs> When I was pitching it around, one of the things was it was, it was said it was too breezy for an academic book <laughs> and too knowledgeable for a for a for a for a coffee table book for a light reading book. So it's it, there's a lot in it. It's a lot. It's quite dense, but 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 in the usual Campbellian style, it it would it would be like having a long conversation with me in a bar. Mm-hmm. Can we say that it's a meticulously researched story? You certainly could. You, it certainly is. <laughs> I, I, I thought I knew. I, I thought I, when I started doing this book in 2013, I thought I knew. I thought right, everybody who would have done that, who could have done this book, was dead. Bill Blackbeard had died. Um, Bob Callahan was dead. Anybody who knew enough to do this was dead, I thought, oh, bugger, I'm going to have to do it now. I'm going to have to do this book myself. And I thought, but I don't really know enough to do it. And then I thought, well, I'll do a bit of research. And I do a bit of research. So, all right, now I know enough to do it. And since that moment, I now know 10 times as much as I know. And I feel embarrassed that I thought <laughs> I, thought I knew enough to do it. Um, but it's a... It, it, nobody's ever nobody's ever covered the the area that this book covers. Nobody's ever nobody's ever looked at the, the, the newspaper as a holistic environment. Um, and the newspaper was full of cartoons. It wasn't just the comic section. Mm-hmm. Uh, every section had its cartoons, and cartoons happened differently in different sections of the paper. They were of a completely different style and order. And I was particularly interested in sports page cartooning, which is where I was heading when you know when I worked my way through this idea of the of the newspaper as a holistic holistic environment. Newspa- uh, sports page cartooning. There's so many great sports page cartooners who are completely forgotten because they didn't draw a long-lasting comic strip. Yeah. Like I think Tad Dorgan is the greatest cartoon of, of cartoonist of the of the period of the first twenty years of the 20th century, but there's no book about him. There's no, you can't even find a substantial collection of his work in any other book. And even when they mention him in passing, they, they usually show one of his cartoons and put circa 1905. And if they'd asked me, I could have told them it was April 1910. But <laughs> <laughs> it was April the 18th, 1910. But, but they, they only discussed Ted in the vaguest possible terms. Nobody's interested enough to find out. He created the comic strip Silk Hat Harry's Divorce Suit. And you see, on the newspaper, on the sports pages, you could do a comic strip about somebody's divorce suit. You couldn't do that in the color pages because they were going to be given to the children. But because the sports page was aimed at the adult male, cartoons happen in a different way there. And on the women's page... They had some lovely romantic cartoons, and we never see those collected. Well, Trina Robbins has been putting a great effort into um, telling us all about uh, Nell Brinkley. Mm-hmm. But the cartoons on the women's pages, they, 
they began by, by reprinting the great series by um, Charles Dana Gibson from uh, from the magazine, the glossy magazines, or uh, James Montgomery Flagg. And these cartoons were always elegant and romantic. And now Gibson belongs, uh, now Brinkley belongs to that tradition. Mm-hmm. It's a totally different tradition from what's going on in the sports pages. Well, I want, you see what I mean? Yeah, I want to kind of dial it back a bit because I'm really curious of why to jump into this. Because I remember years ago, I'm hoping I remember right, you were posting early baseball cartoons, was it, on your blog? Where was I? I can't Possibly. like some. It, it was that kind of like. Possibly. Like, I'm I'm really interested in what took you in this direction because, like as you said, it's it's meticulously researched. Well, I've, and been, it's, no, well, I've been collecting this stuff since the 1970s. I can't remember how I got in, you know, <laughs> how I get into how I get into it was. Uh, I was intrigued by the sports page cartoon. Now, the classic sports page cartoon is a, a remarkable thing because it's not like anything else in the world of art. It usually in, involves a, a serious photographic drawing of an athlete, whether it's his, his portrait or, or in action. Mm-hmm. The, the athlete in action, treated seriously. And then all around this are little vignettes in which they, they get his goat. They, they take the mickey, as we'd say in England. They take the mickey out of him, as we would say in England. They they make a fool of them mm-hmm. in the same pictorial space as they're they're making them look good. They're also making them look stupid. <laughs> and I thought this this is because you don't do that in comics. In comics, you figure out what your style is, and that's the style through the whole thing. Yeah. But but this was a a class of cartoon that embraced multiple styles at the same time. You might have a big you might have big head caricatures, the the the, the realistic picture of the athlete in action and then some scribbly bigfoot things to make him look foolish all, all of this because they, they like the big head caricatures there because if at a sporting event they like to say who was seen what what important personages were seen at the event mm-hmm. so you get little big head characters and so you get three or four different cartoon styles all in the same thing they might even throw in a photograph <laughs> a photograph just for good measure and all of this potpourri this smorgasbord and I thought how did this come about how did they arrive at this and this was the ongoing style you know they'd they'd cover events and they'd they'd daily they'd be the sports page cartoonist like Ted or Robert Edgren would be hitting away at one subject for, for several days and then an event would come up and he'd, he'd go to cover a baseball match and then he'd get back to lampooning his favourite doofus and <laughs> in the sports arena. And when you follow it day by day, it's uh, it's a great adventure. Just like humor is very funny. Some of it's very funny because these guys came from San Francisco. The thing originated in San Francisco and they had a very blunt-nosed, um, hard-boiled style about them. The, mm. See, the cartoon style of the Midwest is very gentle. Yeah. and sweet and lovely and it's Frank King and Little Orphan Annie but these guys out in the west coast are, are, are hard boiled characters Yeah, they take no prisoners they're, they're rude and offensive and they take no prisoners and, and <laughs> it's a completely different style of cartooning 
So I wondered how how did this begin? And I basically I looked through all the San Francisco papers, through all in microfilm and paper from about 1990 all the way through to 1918, 1890 all the way through to 1920 or whoever late I could get because it's difficult to get anything after 1923 because of the the copyright thing. But anyway, uh, and I got a totally different picture happening because we always get the picture of the the comics and, and we only, they only ever look at the comic supplements and they say this thing led to that thing. And then it led to the, and that's not the way it happened. If you actually look at the papers, that's not the story. It's a completely different story if you actually go and look at the newspapers because it isn't a linear thing that's just happening in the funnies because all, all, all of the artists in that stuff were working in the other parts of the paper. Like like the great Fred Opper was doing political cartoons at the same time as he was doing Happy Hooligan. And if you look at all the all the other things that were going on, it's a much richer, multifaceted story that you get. Mm-hmm. And and I thought it's time it's time we started looking at the other aspects of the uh, of the story. It's really interesting that you're kind of trying to ha- figure out how I want to phrase this, um, because like you're talking about how there is a kind of canonical tradition of how people feel or people express comics like looking at the tradition of like the gasoline alley and what that leads to and, and, and so, and so, and so. And one of the interesting things with, with you talking about the sports thing and kind of, I think at one point you called it like a missing link. Um, yes, because for the reason they always say, you know, they, they, the, the, the history, I expect there's going to be an argument about this, but the histories of comics have always, <laughs> I expect, I've been around long enough to know somebody's going to say yes, but that's not the definition of comics. And <laughs> some Scott McCloud's going to pop up and start arguing with me. It'll just appear on your computer. <laughs> just his head floating on your monitor. Oh, yeah. But anyway, the, 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 the great um, histories of comics, going all the way back to Colton Wall and Stephen Becker and Jerry Robinson and Bill Blackbeard and so on. They always say um, the daily comic strip begin really begins with um, or or it is ushered in. You know, little daily comics that appeared before, but the idea of the of the daily comic happening every single day, seven days a week, in perpetuity for the rest of eternity. <laughs> this begins with Matt and Jeff in 1907 in the San Francisco Chronicle, on the sports page. And it starts as a little racing tip thing, which is very, very funny. Um, he, he, he would bet on a horse running that day. He started off with 100 bucks, and he put a bet on a horse that day. And in real time, the next day, he would be either be ahead or behind. So he'd bet on and an usually, actual horse within the paper? Yeah, he'd actually, an actual horse running that day, so you could follow his the ups and downs of his fortune, of his, of his luck. And after a couple of months, he's, 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 um, he, but he's pawned the family piano. He's even pawned the family parrot. <laughs> Jack the parrot has been pawned at the, uh, at the uh, pet shop and, or whatever. 
he's in a terrible mess. He's he's getting divorced. He's he's made a complete mess of mess of things. And but it's happening in real time. And this is is this ushers in this begins the idea of the daily comic. That is to say, the the comic that appears every day and and brings the reader back to the paper. It had been tried previously that previously to that, but it didn't take. It didn't run in perpetuity, <laughs> so it doesn't count. The the definers would say, yeah. yeah. So this is me, but they, so they always said, and then and I thought to myself, so all right, so it begins on the sports page, but how do we get to this point on the sports page where this happens? They never fill in the rest of the story, and then and and so we never get to know that 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 um, the great sports page cartoonist was Tad Dorgan and most of what Fisher did he was he was pinching off Tad Dorgan and anyway everybody was stealing off Tad Dorgan but nobody ever shows us enough of Tad Dorgan to figure out how that how that is so and it was so I think I've got about 50 full scale large Dorgan cartoons in my book and this is the first time that the reader gets a chance to the first time the the aficionado of the history of comics gets a chance to look and see what this is all about. And there's, there's another guy, at least we know Tad Dorgan, but we know nothing about Robert Edgren. Now, Tad was on the Hearst paper in New York, and Edgren was on the Pulitzer paper, the New York World. But I've never read anything about him. I didn't discover him until I started looking into this three years ago. Interesting. It's... And he was huge, and these, these guys were both these guys were huge in their time. They were, you know, celebrities about New York, and they both came from San Francisco. San Francisco is the key to the mystery. I had to go to San Francisco and spend several days in the library there among the microfilm to work out the whole story, the running order, how the order in which things happened. And there are other great cartoonists like Raymond Crawford Ewer and. Um, a guy called Harry Warren, you know, who also came out of San Francisco, and uh, many, many more great and wonderful things that I find. One of the things you talk about, the and they also served, they also served the best oysters in the world down there at the uh, <laughs> at the river at the at the bay bayfront, <laughs> the, the seafront on on Market Street at the big Market Street um, uh, pavilion there. Best oysters in the world. I'll, I'll I'll have to argue with you on that, but we'll we'll save that for another day. Uh, BC is quite known for its very fine oysters. Um, Fanny uh, Bay oysters, uh, in particular, are are. are... <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the things you mentioned early in the book is um, the kind of illustration in comics as an essential ingredient um, within the work, especially in the. 1890s because of the lack of ability to reproduce photos because of printing technology. Yes, you see, you see the photos, the, when photos came into the newspaper, see, in the 1890s, everything in the newspaper was drawn, so every artist could do whatever he was told to do. Like, Tad used to do fashion pictures for the lit women's pages in his early days. I throw one of them in at the very end just to tell you what, what that was about. He Every artist could do anything. Every, newspaper artists consider themselves, 
a breed, a certain type, who could draw anything at the drop of the hat, who could be sent anywhere in town to cover a picnic or a house a house on fire or or a, or a murder, a body at the morgue. You know, he could be sent to draw a body at the morgue or whatever. This was the job. And they took pride in being somebody who could draw anything at a moment's notice on order. And so the newspaper artists were a real interesting breed of characters. They were real hard-bitten guys, you know, <laughs> who could be got up in the middle of the night to draw a corpse or something. And uh, But as photographs came into the newspapers, what you found was that they came into the society pages first on Sundays because that gave them a week to figure it out because they couldn't light photographs really well. It, they always involved a, a lot of retouching mm. right there at the beginning uh, for them to come out right. And they never just, in the beginning, they never just stuck a photograph on the page in a rectangular shape. They always dressed it up in in, in elaborate Baroque frames and, and cutaways. And they're always really interesting. In these days, uh, the yellow journalism days where... Uh, Graphics were really interesting and strange and weird, and every day they were trying to do something different. But one of the the last, so that was when photographs first came in. You know, society matrons, you know, posed with their daughters and all the latest in their beauty and fashions. But the last place where photographs could really be used was the sports page because figures were moving, mm-hmm. people were running. You couldn't recognize a guy if he was running at half speed, high speed. So the artist was still important on the sports page long before photographs were covering things everywhere else. And the sports page cartoon held out for a long, long time and became a tradition because of this, uh, because of this, uh, this expectation of seeing the artist drawing the, um, the athlete in action. Um, and the artists who could do that, who could specialize in that, they could become the sports page specialist because these young guys, and they were all young guys at the time, would much rather be the sports page specialist than the theater specialist. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? That the sports page was a thing to be on. So there was a lot of competition to be on it. And the, the skillfulness in the idiom advanced rapidly because of this competition. And I, a point I make, although I don't belabor it by showing later examples, but it's something I realized when I was looking at a lot of them was that a lot of those early comic book artists like uh, Will Eisner and Jack Kirby, they were getting their concept of the, the athletic male physique. Mm-hmm. They were getting that from the sports pages. They weren't getting it from pulps. They were getting it from... I, I show a couple of examples. I don't compare it with their modern counterparts. But Ed can do these great little um, baseball figures that, that prefigure um, exactly the, the, the same kind of figures that Eisner was did when he did when he did that baseball comic book. It was only one issue. What was it called? Rube? Oh, I can't remember. I, I can't remember, but you know what I mean. And the, all, Eisner's little figures running about owe a lot to Ed Grin. And... When Ed when Edgren did the big serious blocky figures thumping each other, boxers going at each other, they looked like early Kirby. They looked like Kirby was doing right there in nineteen sixty, sixty one. You know, just at the beginning yeah. of the Marvel phase, you know, 
that, so those guys were looking. They were looking at the sports page cartoonists. Well, spe- you but, must imagine, you know, like young boys are into sports quite often. Yeah, that's young lads. That's the first page they look at. They'll be looking at the sports page. Once they've grown out of the funnies, they'd be looking at the sports page. Yeah. And it may a, intertwine as they try to bond with their father, who's likely into sports as well. Like This is true, yeah. This would be the... I've heard stories about that. I've heard reports of that from people. That, um, yeah. One of the but, neat um, things that you... that With, with the, the sports drawing is... Um, I don't know if it's exaggerated movement or just move it within itself... Um, that's quite different than a lot of stuff you see kind of contemporaneously. Um, yeah. Yeah, they... they, And a lot of the little vignettes, a lot of the little scribbly vignettes, I've got, I've got people flying about in action. And, you know, if, if a box of punches another in, in the little, you know, facetious vignettes of a box of punches another one, the guy doesn't just fall over, he flies out. He flies out of the ring with stars revolving around his head, because they love this joke about um, seeing stars. So there are all these there are all these variations on the seeing stars joke. My favourite is the one where he's got the he's got the boxer lying on his back on the canvas, holding a telescope. He's looking directly upright through a, te- through a telescope, and and the caption was um, I forgot the. Jordan took up astronomy in the third round. <laughs> <laughs> you have to imagine that, like Seeger, would have been uh, processing a lot of this stuff. Seeger did. Seeger did a bit of work on on the sports pages when he started out. Oh yeah. I I didn't show these because they later on. But yeah, um, in fact, uh, Dean Mullaney was showing me some Seeger stuff that I hadn't even seen. The book was in because. Dean is the, the IDW editor that I was working with on this. But he showed me some cigar sports page stuff, and I thought, wow, I wish I'd seen this earlier. <laughs> this is great. But his was all goofy, um, oddball comedy. It was, it was like crazy comedy stuff. But it was on the sports page. Uh, and about the event. Oh, he was covering the... Um, he was covering the... What was it? The dark doings of, in Chicago of when... when the, when the Sox oh, took the... bribes, what, what was it? I've forgotten. The, you know, the, uh... Anyway, yeah, I know the whole talking... of that. Yeah, he was covering that for the the Hearst paper in Chicago, I think. The Examiner, nineteen nineteen. What did they call it? Yeah, the uh, the Black whole... Sox. Yeah, the Black. <laughs> Say it ain't so, Joe. Say it ain't so. Yeah. <laughs> now how did the it kind of comes through the book basically you're leading up to the fight between Jeffries and Johnson um, that is the, the culmination of the period yeah. everything leads up to this colossal fight uh, the, the great white hope period because black fighter Jack Johnson had taken the world championship in 1908 and he had to chase Tommy Burns all the way to Australia to get Tommy Burns at last to just agree to have the fight. And in Sydney, Australia, uh, Johnson won the championship, brought it back to America, to the U.S. Was, tra- was always treated badly in the U.S. But, of course, they were glad to have the, the championship back in the, in the country. And 
everybody, all, all everybody was behind the white guy to get it back. Jim Jeffries, he was going to take it back from the black guy. And this whole racist baloney ended up with, um, of course, with Johnson winning and race riots all over America because white guys were pissed off that they'd lost it again. Uh, 20, 23 people killed in the race riots. And this is this is really the the culmination, the, the the crisis point of my story, even though it goes on for a couple of chapters after that. This is the, everything leads to this point. And it all took place in Reno, Nevada. And all the, the, the six or seven great sports cartoonists were all there, camped out in Reno, Nevada, covering it, everybody covering, everybody sending back their daily cartoons and crossing each other's paths. And uh, and I'd love to know more about it. I'd love to, I don't have anybody's left letters or there's more documentary evidence about them. The nuts and bolts and on the ground activities. But anyway, it's like I've got a whole chapter devoted to the uh, whole big 30 page chapter, profusely illustrated, devoted to the big fight. Rube Goldberg was one of the uh, the artists covering it for the New York uh, Evening Mail. Another another San Francisco. All all the great sports page cartoon. All the great sports page cartoonists in New York were San Franciscans. Mm-hmm. There was Goldberg on the Mail. There was Robert Ripley on the um, on the New York Globe. Tad and Edgren, um, Hype Igo on the New York American, they were all San Franciscans. And uh, so any time they needed a new one, they'd have to phone up back to San Francisco and get somebody to come out and take take over because the San Franciscans were the guys who invented this kind of cartoon and they were the ones who were do, still doing it best. They were the experts. Did you kind of always see the fight as as the climax of the story or did that kind of come through in the research i think once i got the sense of it being a book i I always had the idea that that's where it was headed so if somebody said to me oh you've got to include this i thought well i can't include that it comes too much later (laughs) somebody said to me you've got to include uh i forgot the guy's name the the guy who cartooned the brooklyn dodgers um forgot his name in the 1930s, and I thought, nah, it's outside the it's outside the story. He's a great guy, but he's outside my story. Mm-hmm. This this really is where everything is leading. Well, I mean, it's part story, but also part um, really capturing that idea of the, as you said, like that holistic role in comics and kind of how this really early point shaped a lot of things that aren't really necessarily recognized, and so. I see 1930 is like way outside of that scope. Like everything's already so yeah. developed. Yeah. Yep. And and um and as you say, as you picked on there, it was um. What I'm interested in this it is it's a, it's a story. This is this is not a kind of dusty book. This this is a rip roaring story here. I'm telling <laughs> <laughs> a story full of full of thumps. It, it's a story with violent action and uh, and humor and pathos and and all, and within it there are hundreds of other little stories there's little guys who who get one who, whose story is told in one paragraph like there was one there was one artist there Wallace 
Grant Wallace, who who do political cartoons for the Hearst Papers in 1900, and he 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 later wrote the film a film about a South American revolution, and he went on to become a a recluse, and in his later years, he he imagined he was communicating with the people on Mars. And he, he kept, all, he stored all these communications, all these profusely in, in illustrated um, mental communications that he was getting from Mars. And, and when he died, people thought, this man's a genius. He's a 20th century Blake. <laughs> <laughs> all these queer pages and pages of his communications with the Martians. Anyway, but the book is full of little one-paragraph stories like that, of, of people who drew cartoons and then did something else, odd or had a strange life. So many of these little stories. So it's a big story full of little tiny stories. I'm interested in, um, kind of stylistically speaking, the shifts from when uh, the dependency was um, replicating or in lieu of photos to really these are functioning as as illustrations in themselves and how the artists um, kind of put more of themselves into the drawings. Yeah, it, um, it eventually comes up a stage in the story of sports page cartooning where if, if, if the artist has, has, the, has a spot every day that he's going to fill, some days there's no sports news, there's no big sports thing. And Tad started to develop these little funny characters, like Bunk the dog, and Bunk the dog starts to take over, and these little dog situations become Silk Hat Harry's divorce suit, which also ran on the sports page. When, when, there, was, when there was no big sporting event to cover, he would do his comic strip. With, I mean, I mean, dog, Silk Hat Harry's a dog, he's a little dog that wears, <laughs> wears a top, walks upright and wears a top hat. And gets up to no good. And Group Goldberg's another one um, who starts on the sports page. And his, his, the, his invent, the inventions and Mike and Ike, all of this happens on the sports page. It, it's, it's pure cartooning, which has got nothing to do with sports. This is where I'm leading. Eventually, you've got a kind of cartooning on the sports page that's got nothing to do with sports. Uh it's basically just reading material for the guy in the house, for the man in the house. Like the women's page is not, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It will be humor of interest to women's or, or, or material. But their cartoons would be things of interest to women, like like buying a new hat or something. But you get that in, in the guy's page too. It's like <laughs> buying a, a straw boater for the summer, you know, a, a, a flat straw hat like they all wore back then. They'd, they'd, they'd buy a lightweight hat for the summer. So there'd be jokes about that. There'd be jokes about how to choose a hat or what kind of cigars or how <laughs> good to smoke. <laughs> there'd be cartoons about guy stuff on on the sports page. Um Stuff like that. Um, I mean, what was it? Uh, Ripley invented it. Ripley's Believe It or Not starts on the sports page. Oh, really? Yeah. It was a sports page cartoon until it got syndicated. Then, you know, then it ends up in the funny pages with everything else. But we lose that differentiation when everything else ends up in the same place. 
But yeah, Ripley was a sports page cartoonist then. Believe it or not, started on the sports pages. And the great Barney Google started as a sports page comic. That's probably the last great character to come out of the sports pages. Um, now, Harriman is one of the artists featured in your book. And, and Crazy Cat started yeah. on the sports page. There we go. <laughs> in fact, Crazy Cat started the week of the fight between Jeffries and Johnson. Really? He, he had a little black cat and a, and a white dog, and the cat's cat saying, hey, what you looking at, eh? <laughs> He's got the black cat and the white dog. And the black cat becomes Crazy Cat. He didn't have a name at that point. But he becomes crazy cat. Oh, that's funny. He's the, and he's he's the little cat. It's the little cat that's that's living under the floorboards on the Dingbeck family. He come he come up with this little other strip that was a little extra thing in the, on the <laughs> happening on the under the floorboards. So so the greatest comic of all time starts on the sports pages. <laughs> One of the things I was kind of getting an idea of from from reading this is. Um the the pursuit of the sports cartoonists of going to these events and being a part of the sporting experience and you can kind of see within other people like i think it's one of the harriman strips where you can see that little bit of jealousy of of another uh artist having a gig to go to a well, good event yeah i don't it, it, it's extraordinary um because Hearst was working uh, harriman was working for the the Hearst paper in los angeles the Hearst paper had access to all Ted's stuff because he was the New York cartoonist for Hearst. So they would rerun the, the Ted stuff, even though they had Harriman in the building. Yeah. And Harriman got pushed out. Harriman used to do the big full-scale cartoons, and then he got pushed out of that. And he was relegated to just doing decorations around photographs and all second banana stuff. <laughs> they had Harriman in the building, but they were because at the time. Ted was considered the you know the, the bee's knees and Harry Harriman wasn't Harriman only really got a chance when the big Reno fight was on because Tad was out of town. Tad was in Reno and they needed somebody back in New York, so they they got Harriman on the train. They ordered Harriman on the train get out here this instant. Harriman had to drop everything and take the train to New York, which really pissed him off because he wanted to go to the fight in Reno. He'd been building up a, a series of cartoons about it. And he was looking forward to going to Reno and seeing the big fight. And he was so pissed off because <laughs> now he was sent to New York to, to, to mine the, the, the sports page while Ted was away. But it was that week, it was that week that he created Crazy Cat <laughs> on the sports page. Well, he was taken over for Ted. And the rest is history. Uh, um, I'm interested in some of the methodology for your research and kind of finding these stories and finding this information because um, uh, primary sources of more than 100 years ago are difficult at best and you're really able to get uh, a lot of insight and ideas and like this this grandioseness to everything and i'm interested in where's that where that's coming from what's what's been some of your successes in finding out these things um well the, the best the best place ever to, to research stuff was the um billy island museum mm -hmm. because they got um 
Bill Blackbeer stuff because Bill Black is the San Francisco Academy of Comic Book uh, of Comic Art. He collected all this stuff. I don't think he was really collecting the sports page stuff. He's just got that by accident <laughs> because it was in the papers he was collect he was keeping. And he kept the papers was, as a whole, right? And it was San Francisco. He wasn't at first. He only started doing it later. Okay. But he accidentally has got loads of clippings of Davenport and other people that I was interested in. Edgren, he's accidentally got a lot. Of, but he's got Edgren in the Davenport file. Edgren didn't even have a file of his own. I just found a big pile of Edgren stuff at the back of the Davenport file. But because he was in San Francisco, he was accidentally following a lot of stuff. So it was a great. But apart from that, I don't know that any, nobody's kept any. Nobody's kept the sports pages. You know, Blackbeard was just keeping the the color funnies at first, and then started keeping other stuff. But some a huge amount of what I was doing was really just uh, getting it from microfilm, and uh, it's a terrible job trying to r restore a picture from microfilm. Very hard work. So I've learned how to do lots of things. I, hey, do you know what I learned how to do? You know when you scan a big bound book, there's always that, especially a big huge book, like a bound file of, of newspapers, there's that huge shadow in the gutter yeah. where, where, where everything's bound tight at the, you know, at the end, and you always lose information in there. I figured out how to get it out. <laughs> I know how to retrieve information from the gutter shadow. And it's an intricate process. If you ever need to, if anybody ever needs to know, give me a call. <laughs> the secret's not given out yet. <laughs> I, from sheer stick to itiveness, from sheer <laughs> diligence, I figured out how to do it. I figured out how to restore things. I consider myself an expert now. <laughs> I join the ranks of the experts. You're an like archivist. Dean, Mul like Dean Mullaney and. I say, I say to Dean Mullaney, I said, I love it on the Steve Kenyon books. I like how you use a a, a, a set of windows on those Sundays to to get the whites of all the margins. You you put a, this uh, template of windows over it. He said, you know, in the years I've been doing this, you're the first person who said, you're the first person who's noticed it. Because I looked, I thought, how's he done this? And that was the logical way I could think of doing it. So I figured it out. I figured it out right. Anyway, it's pretty interesting time because of like you know, especially with the work that D Dean's doing with the the line of was it the Great American Comic Books? Yeah. Line, um, yeah, Library of American Comics, um, and and just how much uh, he's able to get out there, uh, and it's so fascinating that it just doesn't seem to stop. Yeah, and yeah, he's great, and and the, there's so many people bringing the the drawn and quarterly um, gasoline alleys are brilliant. I've just discovered, you know, if you take the <laughs> Chris Ware's going to hate me for this, if if you take off the dust wrapper, I've taken all the dust wrappers off my draw, off my uh, gasoline alleys. There's seven of them, right? On the spine, there's little baby skeezics on the first one, and then he grows older. Yeah, it's, it's a little flip book of, of him growing older. So I've taken all the dust wrappers off and, and he's just growing older on my bookshelf in a little sequence of images across the spines of the books. That would be uh, Chris Ware's attention to detail. And most people have never seen it because yeah. really, 
they're not letting me is going to take the dust wrapper off and throw it back. Throw it away. Well, I didn't throw it away. I put them away. <laughs> <laughs> but everybody I know is, oh, no, the way you bought it is the way you've got to keep. The way you bought it is the way it's got to stay because that's how it was designed. Fuck off. I change it. Do you know what? I, the first thing I change when I buy a CD, I turn the booklet upside down. Why? Because you can never get the damn thing out. Oh. You've got to put the booklet in upside down. And then it, it comes in and out smoothly. Yeah. Oh, I know. So my entire CD collection, all the booklets are in upside down. And if I borrow a CD <laughs> or someone, they get it back with the booklet upside down. It annoys some people. It really does. Because that's not what you do. That's not how it was designed. Fuck off. I'm doing it upside down. <laughs> I will say that the uh, Gasoline Alley books are a lot easier to read without the dust jackets on. Um, yeah, yeah. I tend to do that with most although, books, though. Although I still, although you still got to deal with with Chris's um, point six, type, <laughs> six point type. Or <laughs> I uh... I've got I've got people who've gone blind trying to read Chris's. <laughs> Although I did it, I did it myself on, on the end of the goat getters. I, I thought, hey, we're never. The notes ended up overflowing the notes section or the goats section, as I've called it. And I thought the only way I'm going to get it in here is reduce it to. I think it's reduced to eight point or something. And I, I reduced it to as small as it needed to be to get in. I thought, damn it, it's only four pages. But you've got to read the notes because there's little anecdotes in the notes. There's there's even stories in the notes. There's little complete stories in those notes you know i always remember um my friend sent some comics to kim deitch and kim deitch's advice is to just sell tell a good yarn and uh and i think basically what we say with that is like a good story comes first yeah <laughs> <laughs> i remember i remember really enjoying one of his earlier things it was a bit i've forgotten i've forgotten the guy's name he was some I was some investigator of the, some otherworldly investigator, some spirit world investigator. Morris or something? What was his name? Morris, maybe? Morris. I can't. Mortkinson or something. I can't remember. <laughs> I can't remember. But I remember this one story was just where he's just involved in, in cunnilingus with some, some lady <laughs> from the spirit world. It was the most captivating story I'd ever <laughs> I've never read that's uh, a nutty story that Kim Deitch had written. God bless he is, he is so, so yes, yeah, the the these compellingly nutty stories. Um I I, I think a really good story will will, will make a, a reader forgive all kinds of bad drawing. Um <laughs> What I was trying to say with that is, is, is for yourself with this book, really paramount is, is with all this information, it is a story and there are stories within stories. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, after... We should move on to my other book. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we used up all the time. Oh, we no. used up all the time. Oh no, we're good. Um, I want to ask quick, really briefly, because uh, it was just announced, I don't know much about it, is you're re-releasing From Hell in separate books. How do you know about this? It was posted online about it. Uh, it was announced. 
Uh, this this isn't color. No, yeah. the, what they wanted to do was uh, somebody the big guy IDW thought, how can we how can we do something with From Hell that, that brings it to a fresh audience? You know, I, I, I guess the thinking was that um, some young kids it might be reluctant to blow. I, how much is From Hell these days? At forty bucks. He might be reluctant to blow 40 bucks on something he's not sure about. Something in black and white. You might look at it, what's all, that, what's all this crap in here? What's all, I can't tell what's going on in here. It's all scribbly. He's, he might be reluctant to blow 40 bucks on it. What's all this scratchy nonsense in here? Um, he, he said, what do we, what do we release, release from hell in, in prestige format, in 10 volumes again like it was the first time? And maybe put in some extra stuff, you know, the DVD extras to make it attractive to a new reader. Anyway, so Chris Starroth had put this to me, and I say, I, I, because I'd only just finished colorizing the little thing on my website called The Empty Nesters, mm-hmm. which is the funniest and rudest comic I've ever done. It's on eddiecampbelldemmit.com. Have you read that? I've read all six. Uh, the, the, uh, the, rude, the rudest thing. I've ever done. I was hoping there were more strips. I was a little disappointed that it stopped in March. Uh, I'll be honest. There was only, yep, there was only thing. So, I forgot what I'm talking about. Um, Coloring. Anyway, so I'd only just finished doing that. And they were, they originally appeared in black and white and an Australian publication, you see, an Australian bi-monthly uh, uh, a serious journal. It was a serious... Um, a literary journal. A friend of mine said to me, he said, you finally got to appear in a, such a serious literary journal and you gave them that? <laughs> the Empty Nesters? <laughs> you gave them that! <laughs> the Empty Nesters. <laughs> which, which is about the, the insane things that this daft old couple get up to after their, their, their child, all the kids have left the house, finally left home and it's the, the stupid things they do when they're finally at complete liberty to do anything. It's the stupid things they choose to do. <laughs> the the most embarrassing and uh, ridiculous. Yeah, that was that was the that was the idea behind it. But I colorized these old things. So when Chris said to me, he said, oh, "What do you think about this, Bromhell? Do you think this is a good idea or not? Or do you think we're?" Because in our world, once you put the thing out in the big book, your work's done. It's just in the big book from now on. Yeah. You don't go back. You don't go back to putting it out in parts. But anyway, the idea had been mooted, and I said, "Well, it would only work if you colorized it." I just said this off the top of my head, not realizing that I was committing myself to two years, of, <laughs> two years of work. Jesus. Colorizing. I'm colorizing. All 60 pages. It takes me a day to do one page. But I'm not just coloring. See, if you just colored in the black, if you just if you just took black photocopies and colored it in with, with colored inks, it could only ever get darker. And yeah. a lot of people think we're from hell. Oh, that's a good thing. Like, that's only a good thing. If it gets darker, that's a good thing. But I wanted to bring a, a full range of um, tones and... Uh, and for instance, in the fourth chapter where he goes, it, it, it all takes place in the day. It's 38 pages in, in a day riding a coach through London from yep. early morning till the moon coming That's up. That's my favorite part of the book. Now, I've just finished that. It is gorgeous. 
I've, I've the impressionistic colours of uh, changing as how the colours change with the time of day. It's like the colour of the air changes mm-hmm. with with through the day, before rain, after rain. The colour of the air is. You, most people are probably not aware of this, but the air is a different colour before, after, and as the sun rises, as the sun sets, and it looks glorious. Mm-hmm. And I haven't. I'm, I'm, I'm taking things. I'm, I'm when I say I'm colourising it, I'm taking what was black and turning black into a colour. So that what was originally black blood is now red blood, but also. What was a cross-hatched sky is now blue cross-hatches with a lighter blue behind. So it's a rich, uh, worked blue rather than just flat blue. And the whole thing is much more interesting than... It took me a while to figure out how to colour on a computer, you see. Because mm-hmm. um, I, I, I'd look at comic books coloured on computer and I think, this looks dreadful. And what, what, why have they got this obsession with purpley-brown? I did a I did a series of blog posts called "Color Me Purpley Brown," and it it didn't matter when I was drawing stuff from Marvel. It didn't matter what I drew; it still got colored purpley brown. It didn't matter what it was. I know there was a. I know. Sorry? I know Vertigo at a time they were limited on the palette they could use because of the printing techniques, and then that. Well, well, and then had that, the inks not arrived. the inks not arrived or something? Well, it's just weird, and it and it passed over for many years. But technology's changed. But because at one point that was like the type of paper they used, and so they just didn't change it. I know what you mean. Right at the very beginning, I think they were. I think that was because they were using a. I think they were using a printer who specialized in printing cornflakes boxes. <laughs> I don't know if I've got that right. I know this is what this is what Charlton Comics was using right at the end. They were using a printer who, 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 whose other work was serial uh, packets, oh, yeah. which are always kind of coarse looking. If you look really close, the colours on those things are coarse. Anyway, I forgot what I was talking about. Uh, anyway, no. so so I've completely done the first two volumes. Uh, there's going to be ten volumes from Hell. Everything is going to be in colour. Everything is going to be wonderful and glorious and horrible. <laughs> <laughs> it's disgusting. I can't wait. <laughs> I like that as a as a as a selling line. It's disgusting. Yeah, I can't wait. The sex scene is gorgeous. All this pink, the pink arses. <laughs> beautiful. <laughs> The sex scene between Eddie and Annie in the first first volume is gorgeous. Everything's all pink and lovely. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, Eddie! Um, I, I look forward to seeing it. Um, I think they're, they're hoping for a, a September release. Okay, and then it's now, good. you're the first person I've told. We've not officially announced it yet. We're going to announce it at TCAF, which is the weekend after this one. So well, you've got you've got the scoop if you know how to use it. Okay, I will. Uh, I will. Yeah, because I didn't hear anything from anyone. It was just something I saw online. It's not like I got like a, an embargoed email from Top Shelf. Like yeah, 
was... now, there are, there's, there's a bit of talk going around. I almost get involved, but no, I thought, no, leave it. I wasn't going to say anything, but you did ask. <laughs> you did ask. Right. Where are we up to? Bizarre romance. Bizarre romance. Now, since I last talked to you, I was living in Australia. I was married. I, was, I, I got divorced. And saying, I, my wife left me. She was sick of being in a comic book. She was sick of life. I'd become a comic book. And, uh, and everybody in it was a comic book character. And she was sick of the whole thing. And we, we, we split up amicably. And I came back to London. And this, so this, this was six years ago. I'm now married to Audrey Niffenegger, the novelist. We married, my God, nearly two years ago. It'll be two years ago in June. I'm, I'm living in Chicago with a green card, with the beautiful Audrey Niffenegger. And let's consider this evidence that I'm still living with Because <laughs> <laughs> I've got to go through the final interview where I have to... But not everybody's published a, a book called Bizarre Romance with their, with their, with their loved one. Mm-hmm. I think we've got an advantage there. I think this may come out right. Well, it's... It... But you know, but you never know when Trump's America. Everything's back front. <laughs> there, there is a little bit of irony. The last time I talked to you, I think you had you already been divorced. Um, oh, had I? Oh, yeah. is that when I was really grumpy and I said, "I'll oh, talk to me later. I'm not in the mood." Was, <laughs> was this two years ago when I said, "Piss off and leave me alone"? Well, no, I think was when it, was it that time? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I know when we interviewed, like when I actually did an interview with you back in 2012. Like I think. Your breakup was something we talked about. Oh, okay then. It's not I, news to you then. All right. Yeah, but but it's there, there's an irony there where we're talking again, and it's about a book you've done with your wife, and I'm really interested in in that collaborative aspect and kind of finding that in a relationship of working together in this way creatively. Yeah, the um, it's been smooth sailing actually. It's been. It's been love. There's been no falling outs. There's been no. There's there, there's one we we kind of made a joke of. We never fall out about it. It's where I changed all the tenses in one of our stories. <laughs> it's all right. <laughs> We've cleared it up. We, it was a bit of ruffled feathers for an afternoon. But you see, it's the story about Blanche Epler, who was Edward Mybridge's favourite model. Uh, now, Mybridge was the photographer who did those wonderful sequential things way back in the 1880s. Uh, this is before film, before moving film. In fact, they used to put his things together in one of those, what's it, Edison scope, kinetoscope things. If you actually run them quickly, the little figures move. Mm-hmm. Like, like a, a rotoscope. You know, he'd have, he'd have 12 figures of, you know, 12 little poses. And they all, yeah, little rotoscope, they all move. You could spin it round. Yeah, these, there's only 12, but you could spin it round and round. But he used to do these really complicated ones where he'd do the same figure shot simultaneously from three different cameras at different angles. So you'd have 36 pictures. So Blanche has got to, and, and, and he, 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 he would just dissect and examine all the different movements of the horse for instance, you know, yeah. the gallop, the trot, the canter. So I've shown one of these as the, as the, the little six panels of the horse in the, the part six, the canter, the horse in a canter movement. 
And I'm facing that. I've got motion studies getting out of bed, <laughs> which I thought was kind of funny. But, but the Blanche Epler, his favorite model, is about to get out of bed. And to get back to what I was saying, Audrey, t- this was a story Audrey wrote in an afternoon. I spent six weeks illustrating it with these gorgeous fig- figure figure arts of, of I'd say to Audrey, I said, um, uh, comics are always written in the present tense, you know, and this would be a perfect one because we're with her. It's the 10 minutes before she has to get out of bed. What goes through her head? She has to get out of bed in the nude and, and walk, uh, you know, and just get out of bed for the cameras, basically, and get up and pull the sheets back on the bed, whatever it is she does. This would be perfect for a present tense. I said, but don't worry about it. I'll fix it. <laughs> <laughs> changed everything into the present tense, but of course, if you change the present tense, then the the past has to become the past perfect, and the future and all the all the other tenses have to shift one along. And I got myself in a bit of a muddle. I got in a terrible muddle. We had to sit down together and work it all out. But it came out fine. It came out perfect. And. Like right after the very last minute, I, 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 I just had her getting out of bed, and it was like, and then it was like they might end the movie. It's like they'd end Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, where they'd say, oh, look, look, there's only, there's only half a dozen of them soldiers up there. We just load our guns and we'll run out. And as they run out the, the, the barn, a squillion guns all go off at once, but they're frozen. The, the camera <laughs> freezes in action. So I thought, she steps out of bed, the camera freezes in action. And I thought, no, I'm going to have to draw her 36 times, <laughs> 12 times from each camera. Yeah. Because the problem was, there was a girl got out of bed, but it wasn't Blanche Epler. It was a complete girl of a completely different shape. She was a tall girl with long legs. And it was, and Blanche has is, 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 is classical proportions with long blonde hair down to her waist. I was going to have to completely make it up. And it's one of, it's one of the pieces of art I'm proud of. 36 pictures of a, a girl getting out of bed. Uh, and I had to basically look at the other thing and then forget about it. So it's all made up. That whole two double page spread, it doesn't exist in reality until I drew it. Mm-hmm. Well, it's beautifully drawn. So that's, but that's so that's my that's perhaps the best that's perhaps the best story in the book. It's either that one or the one about the angels. The one about the angels is my favorite, actually. I, I can see that it's more of that kind of more your surreal a, sense of humor. My, I was able to draw it with all my. All the angels have got red hair. Did you notice that? No. Because I've got, I thought I'm going to, I'm going to get a, a medieval. Ma- I want them to base it on a medieval manuscript. These angels and to make them look like the illuminations from a medieval manuscript. And I got this book about the Book of Kells. Now the Book of Kells was an Irish book. And when I never realised this, but it, this was only like a hundred-page book about the Book of Kells. But everybody in the Book of Kells has got red hair. They're all gingers because it's Irish. You see. Yeah. They, they think everybody in, in Ireland, they think everybody in the world is going to get red hair. And so all these things, <laughs> these little red-headed, orange, orange-headed angels. Um, uh, I had loads of fun with that one. There's a page that looks like a great big um, 
big carpet illumination, I think they used to call it, in the, with the whole back, the whole back. So the old guy, he's got, he's got angels in his attic. He's got an infestation of angels and he has to get in the um, exterminators to get rid of the angels. And the exterminators come and they arrive with their, with, and they realize this, it's not squirrels, it's angels. And they get, all get out their um, flamethrowers. And there's yeah. this huge battle royal in the attic. <laughs> with the, roof, the roof blowing off the house between the angels and the exterminators. I had loads of fun with that. It's kind of neat, like, in, in the way of a collaboration, I mean, it, it, to me, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, it feels like you're working uh, with Audrey's work. Um, and, and it's an interesting, interesting collaboration coming from the, also that romance thing of how you're kind of taking part in her stuff, uh, especially with, like, more of the longer text pieces and whatnot. Yeah, I, I left those as text pieces because one of them involves ghosts and it would have been a terrible but a terrible um like i to draw it would be to get to draw it exactly the way it plays out would be to give things away you know if you saw it coming it would ruin the whole thing um uh i i felt that this is much better as pro is i'll drop in a few um i'll do a big title page illustration and drop in a few um spot illustrations and and there were a few pieces like that that uh, just I couldn't tell how they could be turned into comics. There was one that was my favourite actually. It was it was only three pages long, but it was called the Composite Boyfriend, in which she's kind of mashed up every boyfriend just she could remember. Yeah. And I met him in New York. It was in Chicago I first saw him. I met, I met him on a trip to Germany or whatever, but she just bunched them all in together, you know. Yeah. No, I really, I really liked her stories. Like I really. But uh, but I, but I illustrate. I thought the, it was called the composite boyfriend, and I thought the only way to illustrate that is with the a paper doll. So I've got this big double page paper doll. I've got this naked guy, and you can with the and you've got all the all the clothes you can put on him with the tabs, and you can just dress him up. And it's all kind of funny because you've you got two brains that you can give them. One's a brain and one's a squirrel. Yeah. <laughs> that was her idea. But, um, yeah. So I had <laughs> fun. I had fun illustrating things that weren't always... But, but the, you know, the paper doll is, is another aspect of comics. The funnies, the funnies, the, the Winnie Winkle and Jane Arden you know, in the funny papers. They always used to give you a paper doll along the bottom strip. You know, paper doll was integral to a particular kind of comics. Comics that would interest, into, interest girls. They liked the paper doll. They do that in the, they do that in some of the comic books as well, like Billy the Model and so on. You know, the, mm -hmm. they, and it's an integral part of girls' comics. And I kind of got into this thinking we were kind of doing girls' comics. See, that's why I called it romance. Audrey didn't want to call it romance. She says, no way are we calling it romance. She says, if you call it, once you go down that road, you say, it, it'll end up with a pink cover and hearts <laughs> and, <laughs> and flowers, which is what it's ended up with. Um, and she hates it because when her, when her novel at the time, Travis Wife, when it was published in Spain, I think it was, they put it into their 
their version of their Harlequin line with the little pink hearts on the front and everything. She was furious. She was so angry. When her stuff gets treated like chick lit, yeah. she, there's nothing makes her angrier. But I actually love the old romance comics from before the before the code, the pre-code romance comics. Oh, really? There's still a variety of interesting. Although even kind of slightly before that. But right at the beginning, when Jack Kirby introduced the genre in 1947, up to about 1951, 1952, the stories are full of variety and strangeness and odd things. And then it all becomes about girls sobbing over Brad. You know, oh, Brad, he doesn't love me anymore. You know, like in the the Roy Lichtenstein paintings? Yeah. They become the cliche. But to say that romance comics are stupid... It would be to imply that other comics are not stupid. <laughs> See, I I find a lot like I don't read a lot of romance comics, but I always visually find the late sixties, early seventies stuff appealing because they actually go kind of more off the hook in terms of like psychedelic imagery in mainstream yeah. comics. I never liked them. I I only like the oldest and the earliest one. Yeah, and. The old 1940s, because I'm an antiquarian, I guess. You're a traditionalist. But you know, but, but, you know, but Frazetta do a bunch of romance comics. Alex Toth do loads of romance comics. You know, all, like, my favorite artists all do romance comics. John Buscema, you know, you know, whatever. All these guys, they all do romance. John Romita, they all do romance comics in the 50s. Well, you could say that some of Romita's Spider-Man was romance comics. They too. still look like, but yeah, by the time he's drawing Gwen and Mary, and Mary Jane, they still look like romance comics. This was the first time in comics we'd ever seen sexy girls. Yeah, because because Steve Ditko's girls weren't really sexy. Love Steve Ditko. His Spider-Man is sexy, but his girls weren't sexy. And when when Romita came in, he's got these he's got these girls in mini skirts and all these gorgeous patterns on them and uh, and the long hair that's all flouncing about and the patent yeah. leather boots and the boots the boots up to the knees I, you know for an 11 year old it was all a bit too much <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh those were the days and another thing about see another thing about the, the bizarre romance is that Audrey's romance stories have given me the chance to to draw a wide variety of different women. Every woman in this story is a completely different character, completely different appearance and background. You know, like the the girl in Rose Red is this daffy teenager. You find yourself in, a, in an alien dimension because you fell through the mirror, and like Alice, and and she becomes queen of this domain, and she introduces Coca-Cola, fish fingers, and democracy in that order, <laughs> she's, because she's a teenager, and I took somewhat del- I delighted in drawing her as a teenager with a mop of unruly long hair that's always in her face and flying about. And, and but the girl in the last story, it's the complete opposite. She's a girl who, who's in her late thirties who feels that feels that she's wasted her life. And I've 
I've drawn it's just bespectacled and and sedate and restrained and um, and kind of featureless in, in a way introverted but I had this idea her features go in and out of focus yeah it's like her face her glasses are always in perfect focus and her features are going in and out of focus behind these perfectly focused glasses it's just a strange odd pictorial device I, I, I fell upon and she's a completely different personality and uh, she's so neurotic and introverted that it, it this turns into a horror story. It's such a completely different story from the, the daft one in the other dimension. There's completely different moods and different things going on. But you see, in traditional comics, there's not all different women. There's only two women. Because, you, you, you know, there's Gwen Stacy. And, and Mary Jane's really just Gwen Stacy with red hair. Mm -hmm. So there's two women. There's Gwen Stacy and Auntie May. Yep. You know, there's only two types. There's, there's a pretty young woman and there's the old woman. There's, there's, nothing there's in Betty and Mrs. Weatherby or Mrs. <laughs> and there's nothing in between. There's yeah. Betty and Veronica, but Betty and Veronica are just the same girl with different color hair. Yeah. And they both look like Mary Jane. They both look like Gwen Stacy. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's only one girl in comics. Or two if you count Andy May. <laughs> we circle back to Ditko. Um, Which brings us back, yeah. Oh, where were we? Yeah. Um, we were talking about bizarre romance, and so you're going to be taking uh, the book on tour, a, a yeah. short tour. Yeah, we're not doing bookshops, but you can see us at conventions. We're going to be at Comic Con, Audrey and I together, and that's... finishing each other's sentences. <laughs> One can hope. Uh, finishing and then... each other's. <laughs> Oh, we're so in love. We, we finish each other's sentences. You know, they, you know how they say. Anyway, it's it's been a good romance so far. It's like... <laughs> it's been lovely. Come and meet us. Uh, as Come well, and meet us. you'll be at TCAF. And TCAF, and just a week and a bit. Well, next week we'll be at TCAF. And then cake in Chicago. Yeah. In, in June. And San Diego, yeah. And there'll be, and I think there might be something in September. But I forgot what it is, Brooklyn or something. I don't know. I tell, I tell myself on a need to know basis. <laughs> you know, I only know if it's, I only know if it's San Diego because you've got to book the hotel room <laughs> by now. If you haven't got it by now, you've missed. It's, I tell myself on a need to know basis. Yeah. If I don't need to know, then I haven't told myself yet. It's like somebody send somebody will send me with the they'll say here's the itinerary. I don't look at the itinerary until I'm on the train. <laughs> <laughs> I don't look until until I'm at the airport, and then I think right where places am I supposed to be going? And I look at the itinerary then, but I, I not until I've left the house as a rule. Yeah. Is it just kind of like when you have to go to a show, it's kind of you just focus on the show and don't really get to experience the cities? Whatever you go in the world, everything closes on Monday. All the museums close on Mondays. And you're there for the, the convent, the festival on Saturday and Sunday. And the museums close Monday because they've, they've been doing a hot trade all weekend. And I've been working on the weekend. There's nowhere to go on Monday because everywhere's closed. I'm so that... pissed off. I'm not going anywhere anymore. After this year, I'm not going anywhere. I've had enough. <laughs> I'm turning everything down. 
(laughs) (laughs) Unless it involves a museum visit. Yeah. Yep. Well, if you get a chance to go to the Royal Ontario Museum in Toronto, uh, I think it's open seven days a week. Oh, excellent. Um, it's it's a pretty beautiful. They have an amazing amazing exhibits there, um, and it's not very far from the festival itself. Oh, excellent! We'll have to do that. We'll have to do that. Excellent. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time with me today, Eddie. It's been. Have a... we used up an hour? How long have we oh. been jabbering? Ah, uh, we're we're at about an hour and fifteen almost. So. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. how time flies. <laughs>